What up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. This week's guest is Matt Johnson, one of the most respected drummers to a handful of the guests I've actually had in this podcast. He's probably most known in the drumming community for playing on Grace by Jeff Buckley, but he was also a touring member for St. Vincent for a handful of years, and he's played with many artists. You can look them all up, but the two I just mentioned are certainly enough to make him a legend. He's an incredible teacher and a very philosophical thinker. This episode is chock full of fun tangents that showcase his deep thinking and very passionate approach to music. We actually recorded this episode earlier in 2021, so I apologize for the wait, but it's here, it's out, and I'm very happy to share with you. So the audio isn't the best in this one, which is partly why I haven't released it yet, but I think this whole conversation's worth it. So the first words you'll hear from Matt are him responding to a story that I've told multiple times in this podcast, but we shared a practice space across the hall from each other at a facility in Los Angeles, so I took a lesson with him. At the end of the lesson, he wanted to see what drum set I was working with in my room. So at the time, it was a shared kit. It wasn't even mine. I want to say it was an old beat-up Ludwig standard with pitted heads, and it just it was just falling apart. So it did not sound good when I played it at all. But when he sat behind the kit, it sounded like the most vibey musical kit I've ever heard in person for a long time. It proved really that it's all in the hands and the mind of the player, and I think about that moment all the time. Anyways, enjoy my lighthearted but simultaneously heavy conversation with one of my favorite drummers, Matt Johnson. Yeah, there's there's a couple things it was making me think of. Last night I was watching uh, a couple of videos of my with my lady Anna at home. You know, we were, I was watching Flock of Seagulls, Iran, and there's another one. Um, the chorus is like, "We were falling in love." This whole thing. Yeah. And so, anyways, I was just thinking about that in terms of playing. Like when I watch Flock of Seagulls, I'm not I'm not listening to Flock of Seagulls for like super like sessiony metronomic drumming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm listening to it for the feeling of the unbelievable feeling of those awesome songs, you know, and like it works. So I was just thinking about that. Like, because I record myself all the time, I have heard myself sound so bad, but I've gotten better about uh, just, just going like, dude, it's all right. It's, it's all good. So I was just thinking about like, you know, how we beat ourselves up about how we sound and stuff like that. Uh, Yeah. Okay. And then uh, with, going back behind and playing your kit, uh, and, uh, you know, sitting behind it and having, I, I interpret what I, I've kind of been calling what you're saying, believability, mm-hmm. uh, like yeah. sound, in sound. Yeah. I, and I think about believability, like with, well, take for example, um, Ann Wilson, uh, the singer, there's no doubt in the first bar that she sings in the verse of Barracuda, Mm-hmm. There is no way that there's anyone who doesn't believe that. Sure. Now, it's actually not the best example of her singing for that reason, though, because she could just sing one note and it's instant believability. It's like, uh, wow, 
one note. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't really know what passage in Hart's music you're going to find her singing just that one note that would perfectly exemplify that. But everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, there's yeah. no way to hear her sing where you're not like, oh, oh, wow, that is like not only commitment right now, but that that's like that's like you know the mushroom popping up of a lifetime of commitment underneath or a lifetime of talent and commitment underneath the surface. So when that one note is like that mushroom. You know, and but you know the whole forest is, is you know has that you know mycelium underneath it. That's that's what's happening with her when she does that. And I was just thinking about, I was watching JoJo Mayer play unbelievably awesome stuff, and and there's a lot of stuff that he does that you know, it's like I'm so far away from being able to do what he does that it's almost like I'm watching snowboarding. <laughs> um, and on this particular example, he was, you know, like, and he was playing his left hand. He was like, you know, playing four in a row, uh, absolutely stunningly beautifully. Mm-hmm. And, and then I started talking to Anna. I was like, I was like, yeah, you know, there's people that can do their fingers, you know, like they're holding a stick and it's like, bam, bam, you know, it's like hit. And then, you know, you know, what I'm talking about, yeah, they, totally. get, they, get, they get the rebound with different fingers and they got a whole thing going there. Marco Miniman does that a lot. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the guy's unbelievable. And so the sound production thing that you were talking about in your room, mm-hmm. that's the reason why I feel like, and I told Anna this, I was like, you know what? It's like, I'm not, I'm not even ready for finger technique yet. And, and I'm not being phony humble because mm-hmm. like, I really mean it. Like I am not ready for that. Like it. Uh, it doesn't mean that somebody who's just starting it isn't ready for it either. I, I don't mean that. If you're into that, go for it. But it's like, I got a whole mountain of stuff over here that I'm psyched about. And it and it, and it I still haven't arrived at needing to play very fast. And usually I just found something about, you know, the, the, the maybe the way my, my personal, you know, head works. You know, it's it's better for me to start really reducing notes as I play faster. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm clumsy. You know, I don't know what it is, but like some people sound good with a, a high density of notes, and JoJo is one of those people. You mm-hmm. know, he can just play a cloud of insane awesomeness, yep. and I'm like, man, I can't do that, not even close. So, but you know, I try to like at least sit down and and be able to be believable as a common sense you know, workhorse, reliable drummer who's going to like, you know, hang out with you and, and try to understand your song or like, you know, try to understand the zeitgeist to this moment to make this gig awesome. That's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, you know, it's like I was watching uh, Jojo and Mark Juliana play off each other too on like one symbol. And, and, you know, I don't think Mark does any of that finger technique stuff. So he's a very different drummer. But once again, there's all kinds of stuff that like, you know, trying to go into his territory for me is like, I mean, for some people, there's probably a lot to be found there. I feel like, I feel like I'm in a minefield. <laughs> you know what I mean? I try to go into Markland and I'm like, I'm in a minefield, man. I got to like, I can only foray so far because uh, I just, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't have that. So anyways, uh, please go on. It's just interesting what you're saying. I would bet a lot of money that Mark would hear a lot of your playing and say the exact same thing. Like, I got to go into Matland. I mean, that is not me. That's what I love about drummers is when, if there's no competition, you look at everyone, you're like, that's different. And that's so rad because it's so based off the ergonomics of your body and your intentions and what you're doing with it. And it's, it's really fun. Well put, man. And, and I just find the instrument is it, it's a great combination of, 
a really, really inspiring instrument, and it's also humbling. So, Very. Uh, you know, I find that if the music goes well, you know, I feel good. And usually I've, I've just tried to reduce the, the amount of notes that I'm playing uh, until I, you know, until I'm like, okay, I think, I think stuff's kind of, this is, this is selling, you know, this is good. Uh, that's just been my personal journey. That's probably one of the little flags that I would just hold up and go, okay, this is the little flag that I have to stand under. That kind of works. Well, it kind of ties into something I wanted to ask you about because you've, I've seen you say a few times that your your approach to grace was to, or one of the approaches was to leave as much space as possible. And I've heard you quote, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase it, so please correct me if I if I butcher this, but how some people can feel um, uncomfortable in the silence between the sounds. And then a lot of times you look back in hindsight and the silence was part of the event. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes I think about that because uh, I was kind of thinking about it before, like the lateral aspect of drumming, which is, you know, the the decay after the transient or, you know, the any note that's or, or sorry, any instrument that's really more more prone toward that kind of aspect in music where like, you know, like a, a, you hit you, you push the piano, uh, the pedal on the piano down, you hit a note like, OK, these kinds of sounds that are longer, um, you know, drums tend to, to have a lot to do with the transient. Mm-hmm. You know, th- in that sense, they're quite vertical. Yeah. Yeah. You can like totally adapt that and make that different. And, and of course, you know, hitting a cymbal, that's a long sound. But I, I just feel like uh, when it comes to, you know, drumming uh, with people, you know, playing playing in a situation or a song or whatever, like that, uh, I, I it was happening today where I, I just realized like I was kind of searching for some kind of pattern to, to create like some kind of a fractal or some even if it was a deceptive pattern, like in other words, even if it was a pattern that read to the to to the joke you public kind of hypothetical as a syncopation, because the pattern wouldn't really be decoded. So it would just be experienced as a as a syncopation. But I'm searching for this pattern. And then and I I start I listen back and I listen back and I'm like, it's wrong every time. I'm like, delete or command Z, command Z, command Z. Mm-hmm. Like that's wrong. That's oh, wrong. I love that's that wrong. button. And, yeah, right. Totally. I mean, I cannot even begin to tell you how I mean my Z is like a, it's like a hole now, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. <laughs> Sorry um, to interrupt. No, it's no, totally. Um, and uh I realized that it was like it's like, dude, like listen to listen to the vocal. Like listen to that, you know, listen to that more lateral. And more in this case, more like it's it has more like curvature to it. You know, like you just like I was saying, it's kind of draped over. I can't I can't remember what I was talking about before about draping something over. But, you know, it has that quality of um, uh, fluidity and try and then and then sort of trying to allow for that and then like make the drumming about that for a second. So I don't know, Levon Helm and Tony Williams came up for me just now, you know, in terms of like drummers that were able to, you know what I mean? Like to work very well with those, uh, this dimension, you know? It's so funny. I think you, you saying Levon is just a cap. I think he is the most mentioned drummer from me, him and him and Jim Gordon are just I'm obsessed with them. So there you go, folks. Levon's mentioned once again. Um, and I, and I agree with you. So I did, uh, I wanted to mention, this is exciting because you are the first drummer who's actually had, you were the big fat five of two guests we've had on so far, so far. And I, uh, I will call them out. So when they hear, they can be nice and embarrassed that I'm telling you this, but, um, so Steve Gould talked about 
that kind of polyrhythmic fill you do about two thirds of the way through Mojo Pin, um, where you kind of go from triplets into straight time. I mean, I'm not even going to try and describe what it is, but people can can listen to it. But you kind of go into this kind of falling down before you go to the next section fill. So that that was Steve's choice. So you were you were his big fat five, who's a Thank great you, drummer, Steve. Steve. Thank you, Steve. And then Brody Simpson uh, talked about lover uh, lover. You should have come over and. I actually, if you don't mind for the listeners and in real time for you, I want to play the uh, kind of the two minute excerpt that Brody chose that song for you. But he just because I told him just pick a song, but he was basically just your drumming on Grace in general. So if you don't mind, because um, I'm ha- I'm horrible at taking compliments, but I want you to hear what Brody had to say in real time about your drumming. Uh, cool. But the tones are so refined and there's so much clarity in them mm-hmm. but they're not lacking anything they don't feel kind of like overly jazzy and trying to be too nice like it's just such a great combination of like all the things that that record without those drum tones would not yeah. be the same record for me i mean the songs would still be amazing but matt's playing is just out of control good and those fills especially as it it climaxes, it kind of gets it gets busier, but there's never a single thing that I find intrusive about it. Nothing ever steps on the vocal. Everything just punctuates the vocal so beautifully, and he grabs those hits on the way down. And Man, it's just... I, I remember the first... Because I kind of got into that record actually reasonably late. Like, I didn't... I uh, probably got into it around 2003, 2004. Mm. So 10 years too late, really. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, this is just out of control. Like, I've just never heard anyone feel and sound and feel and sound that good and be so appropriate and complimentary and oh man just absolutely love that record so much and his playing is just out of control i'm not sure if you're familiar with brody simpson but he is one of today's top drummers and i can't imagine him giving another drummer a better compliment than that oh cool i i gotta meet brody he sounds like a really cool guy and i really appreciate the shout out that that's super nice and uh uh, you know, it, when he was uh, talking about that, it was bringing me back to the days uh, before, you know, Grace happened. And there were two guys, and I didn't realize that these two guys actually were aware of each other. Uh, but uh, one is a guy named Juju House, uh, who played with Chuck, uh, Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. And when I saw Juju House play, uh, that he was playing, uh, I get chills just thinking about it even. I really do. I mean, I think about what Juju did that night at Tramps in New York City on 6th Avenue, probably 1991. And uh, they used to have this floor in Tramps that had uh, like, a, like a suspension system so that when they would bring the kind of go-go band in there, which is, you know, and then that group will just sit for the whole night uh, and they'll just kind of stick songs over it, but it never stops. And Juju was absolutely, I mean, it was a revelation. I mean, it, it's like I, he barely hit a tom. Uh, he occasionally would smash a cymbal. Uh, but he smashed that, I mean, he smashed that groove into submission for an hour and 15 minutes or something, whatever, however long it was. It was unbelievable. It was life-changing. Mm-hmm. And then I remember, okay, because what I wanted to talk about was the sense of scale. Okay, like um, one of the problems that I had as a as a drummer when I was young, particularly was uh, cluttering everything up uh, where I would be I'd be, you know, playing in such a way where it was like, well, I thought that that little thing I did was a big deal. But actually, not only was it not a big deal, 
it actually got in the way of the big deal that could have happened if you would have been about the big deal. So Juju, like when I saw him do that with his, you know, you know, his groove and everything, I was like, oh, like uh, none of that fiddling about that I have, none of the fiddling about that I've ever done in terms of thinking some, some idea that I had was really cool. It never arrived at anything even close to being that great. Uh, and he did very little except for this unbelievable group. Okay. And then the other one was Dave Grohl. Like when I saw what Dave Grohl did with Nirvana and, and, and the way he did it, the scale on which he was thinking, it was kind of big think. Mm -hmm. and, and it was like, well, he's not going to bother to insert some dumb little thing there because there's this bigger point. And so, you know, what, what Brody's saying about like a bit of distillation uh, and trying to stay out, you know, quote unquote, stay out of the way. I don't, yeah, I mean, you know, I appreciate that. And it just makes me think a, a lot about, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, how people, a lot of people arrive at a really, really good synthesis of that per their personality. Mm -hmm. You know, like they, a lot of people will arrive at that and, you know, figure out a sense of scale and also like uh, the, the narrative, you know, like how much is needed and uh, what's getting in the way. And usually there's nothing in between, I don't think. I honestly think there may be nothing, there may be no note that's in between those two things ultimately. Uh, you know what I mean? I think it's very polar. Okay, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Hey, y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud. And it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour. And I didn't keep it and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time and I just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye um, so I do want to get into the the, the big fat five, um, and I know I'm sure you are so sick of talking about Grace um, because I'm sure everyone brings it up, but it's such a good record, man. So I, I apologize. I'm going to ask one more thing. You 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 talked about. I'm trying to find find the quote. Oh yeah, you said during the during the recording of Grace that you needed a lot of the seasoning that 
an older drummer might have that you didn't have yet. Do you still, and I know you've alluded to the fact that you don't like to listen back to the record too much because you don't want to find something you don't like about it. But do you look back at that record and still think that same perspective now knowing that so many other drummers will say that that's probably one of the top five recorded drum performances on a record? I, uh, I, the main feeling that I have about, you know, Grace is that I feel really lucky. You know, it was in, I remember, I remember Robert, maybe somebody asked Robert De Niro, like, you know, you know, how'd you get so successful or what is success, you know, or something like that. And, um, and he said something like, uh, you know, you gotta be prepared and you need luck. And, and, and I felt like, you know, preparedness aside, you know, I definitely got really lucky, uh, you know, meeting Jeff and having the opportunity to, to be at that, at that kind of point where that was a very, you know, there was a catalyst kind of point for everybody in that band. And then I know there was a, with Jeff's talent, you know, the flowering of his talent to be there at that, at that point. So, um, you know, it's sort of the situation sort of, at that point, at least, I guess I, I, I look at it as playing itself. Do I want, like, I mean, I mean, I, I really, man, I'll take it back to flock of seagulls, man. Like, do I, do I want, you know, flock of seagulls to sound really session? Do I want them to sound like a steely Dan, like, you know, session, like where, you know, stuff is like really, uh, I mean, look, steely Dan is the best example of that, you know, but it, it's quite pristine, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, now, I wouldn't go as far to say it's sanitized, but because it, it has, it, I mean, it's just awesome music. But I don't really want, you know, uh, uh, you know, Flock of Seagulls to sound all like, you know, perfect. Uh, and and so when I look back at, you know, something like that, like something that I played a long time ago and I'm about to beat myself up over it or like, you know, be like, oh, my God, that's so amazing. You know, I think it's funny, like when you start getting into relating to the click or like, you know how brutal drumming can be with like, you know, Hey, were those singles really clean? You know, we're like, were you really like playing, you know, what you really grooving? You know what I mean? It's like, and it's like kind of actually the, the groove has, you know, like crooked tea. Sure. You know, it has fucking crooked tea and like, it's not perfect, but you know what I realized, you know, I've been listening to music uh, with an ear towards this, that, you know, those imperfections in the age of, you know, basically like iterated programmed music that is not even played a lot of the music that we listen to has never been played because Mm -hmm. it's it's a computer spat it out which isn't the same as playing um so in that age i think i think that those uh the the surges of emotion and the, the the modulations of emotion and and the physiology of what's going on behind say a violinist you know with their their fingers on the instrument and you know, breathing a note to life, like that stuff is, you know, I just don't have any time for like getting bummed out about humanity. Like I, I listen to Morrissey's vocal and if he's made at least in part a new, not a new genre, but like with the Smiths, like if he's made somewhat of his uh, name and fame about uh, uh, by actually being a little bit sharp sometimes, mm. like his vocals kind of sharp and, 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 and I'm like, I, I, please, please do not change that. Mm-hmm. Please do not change that. Like the, uh, the humanity of it. It's, it's so beautiful. Well, and you were talking about Larry Mullins earlier. And if you listen back on some U2 records, Bono, there are some Bono tracks that you're like, oh, okay. You didn't, I mean, you're belting it, but you're not quite there, but it's obviously perfect. But it, but it's better in a way because, yep. And I don't know, uh, I've talked to piano tuners, you know, but the way, you know, pianos that sound right are not tuned perfectly. And, um, interesting. 
Yeah, they're not. No, whether but yeah, a, a perfectly tuned piano will sound quite. Uh, it will. It will not sound good to you. Um, it will sound very cold. I think it's cold. Uh, but I think they bring. I can't remember. If they bring the bass slightly up and 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 the high notes slightly down. So it's almost like, in in terms of perf, uh, perfect tuning, it's almost like they've created a bit of a hump. Like where the notes in the middle, I think are in, I think it's in relation to each. Anyways, I'm kind of getting out of my, what I know here, but the, I think a lot of the stuff in the middle is more perfectly in tune with each other. And then it gets, it starts to go like, I think like that, you know, anyways. Builds, yeah. It builds tension. Yeah. It's cool. Uh, well, yeah. And that, that's, that's what I'm saying. There's nothing more beautiful than a group of musicians, uh, listening to each other and tuning themselves in in the moment because actually the focus uh you get this wonderful effect in terms of the tuning of like it's almost like a bit of blurriness and then it comes into focus like the chord will come into focus you know as they're singing sure. and 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 it will like it, it it's really beautiful like you get more for your money as as opposed to everybody arriving at perfectly 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 <laughs> it's like it's like uh well that just fucking died like yeah that's it's fucking dead man uh and and it's like i'm totally fine to be some old dude who no one gives a shit about and i'm, I'm just like these motherfuckers with their fuck, you know what i mean like you know like talking about like perfect this and and quantize that and being all bitter and old i'm not bitter i'm old as shit and <laughs> and that is like my argument for you know like dude like shit being perfectly in tune it's just not the way forward man anyways well, whatever if any listener thinks that that are is viewing you that way i'll just say it as the host you need to get your head out of your ass because you're wrong um and you're wrong meaning the listener i'm talking to you in your car matt's right so uh let's let's get into the big fat five i think this is a, this is a great pre-roll um people uh, cool. got your perspective as a lot of stuff or on a lot of stuff so um you sent me five and i and i love the fact that they weren't specific songs they were more uh a little more esoteric and so i'm i'm really excited to hear what you have to say about these so the first one was um your first lesson with with bob mckee yeah bob mckee was from parma ohio he died well into his 90s about two years ago uh a professional drummer his whole life um uh and i took my first lesson with him in 19 i believe it was 80 um should have been 80 in ohio right parma ohio um and uh, I took a, quite a number of lessons from him over the next couple of years. And uh, some of the things, I mean, he introduced me to stick control. Mm. He sat me down in front of stick control. And he basically, I think he pretty much figured out a way of telling me, like, there probably won't be a day when you won't really be able to, there probably won't be a day when you'll be able to justify not having some reason for looking at this page. <laughs> Meaning number one or whatever, yeah, number 15, it, it, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's actually hilarious. I mean, you know, the guy probably said, I'm pretty sure he said something to me. He, he made me understand that in, in roughly 1980. And uh, uh, it's actually funny because I really, unfortunately, don't know what's in stick control past. I think maybe I know what's on page 16. I can't picture page two. I Well, it's actually page five is page one, I think. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't really know what's on page six, so uh, <laughs> it's in that you know what, and that is not good. It's I'm no, just no, I know what you mean though. It, it's 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 freaking laziness on my part, but like, <laughs> um, 
and lack of curiosity. But, um, you know, there's a lot on page one. So he, yeah, he, he and he also showed me uh, that book, The New Breed, mm. and uh, by uh, Gary Chester. And uh, and then, of course, I learned, you know, he had a symbol on his wall that was played by Elvin. Uh, and, uh, and he knew he had, I, he had subbed for Buddy Rich one time with the big band, I believe. That was a story I was long before I was born, but uh, he could, you know, he could sight read, uh, uh, he could play small combo jazz and he just kind of knew, he, I think he taught Jamie Haddad as well, uh, who's another fantastic drummer. I believe when Jamie was real young in Ohio, he might've taken lessons from Bob McKee as well. So all I could say is that Bob, uh, you know, it was, he was kind of the, one of the first people that I, I ever heard some of these names, you know, like it, it could have been Vinnie Caluda or, or Dave Weckl or Tony Williams or, you know, uh, Paul Motion or Elvin, you know, so it's like, you know, he, 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 he was like the best teacher you could ever hope for. And he was already, you know, he was probably my age when I, you know, he's about my, he's probably about 50 when I met him and I was just a little kid, you know, so anyways, yeah. Yeah, that was Bob McKee. Great, great drummer. Great drummer. So you you grew up in Houston. Uh, how old were you when you were in Cleveland? Like, what what brought you to Cleveland to be able to meet Bob? Uh, my dad uh, lived in Cleveland with his, uh, you know, with my stepmom okay. and siblings. So I went up there to live with them for a couple of years, and uh, I, I lived there, you know, in the very early eighties. Um, and there was a nice little uh, jazz scene up there. There was this guy Arnie Lawrence who lived up there, um, and also, you know, like um jim hall is from ohio um so you know got like arnie lawrence uh uh and also maybe uh well i'm trying to maybe i'm i'm trying to remember some of their names now but mark ridley the flute player there were quite a lot of people so i was able to go to the little jazz clubs with my dad when i was a kid and see you know that some of the local guys who were and i i remember seeing jamie had dad play when i was a kid you know and that was that was awesome but there was a jazz scene and my dad really liked the jazz scene. Um, and so I was able to go out and just watch people, you know, do their gigs and kind of navigate, uh, take, for example, a room or club and like watching them, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, watching the, the dynamics. A lot of it was dynamics uh, with a lot of the jazz drummers. And that was a great thing to watch, including watching Bob play my teacher. Before we move on to number two, do you remember any specific examples of what he told you to use with stick control because obviously like you you were saying so, i mean similar to new breed those books are the books that like you can never be like i'm done with new breed i can no longer use that you know yeah like was much. yeah uh yeah i mean like you know i remember like he introduced me, you know because i was just a kid and and i didn't really know what was going on with drums yet but um he introduced me to just certain concepts of like you know just because you're you know playing notes with different hands doesn't mean they should sound any different or just because you're playing you know two notes in a row with one hand doesn't mean that the first one's louder than the second one mm -hmm. you know or like uh you know he he would look at my technique which was probably horrible and uh and he would just try to get um a bit of insight into what he saw as being you know a process wherein i was very interested in playing so mm -hmm. you know uh he saw very quickly that I, I really took to the instrument and really wanted to do it uh and i just i i i think he saw that and he responded to that i think in a really great way because he never he was never uh 
you know, he never was negative toward me, ever. He never used negativity. Uh, he only used, uh, he only, he, he, he just came at it from a standpoint of like knowledge and wisdom and patience. And it was, it, he was real, he's a real cool guy. Uh, so that was impressive, you know? So, uh, yeah, he, there was a lot, I guess. Uh, I was just so young, you know, but yeah, when he introduced me to the new breed stuff, he, he showed me like, okay, play this and read that. Mm -hmm. And when I first hit that wall, I was an addict. I was a straight up addict. I was like, oh man, that just stopped me cold. Sure. You know, he, he would just cold stop me on that, on that new breed stuff. And then, and I remember, and, and then you're later on in the eighties and of course in the nineties, I was like, yep. I'm so glad I'm my first teacher showed me that. Uh, I'm so glad he did. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of, in, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I learned that that was, I was pretty addicted to that process of finding a place that isn't fast. It's nothing, you know, necessarily fast going on, but it's a showstopper mm -hmm. because your brain can't quite necessarily hear these juxtaposition of ideas. I, I've always kind of thought about it. Well, not always, but, you know, in the last several years as, as what I've been thinking of, it's a rhythmic counterpoint, basically. It's just like, it's not really harmonic theory, but it's sort of like a, it's similar to what I think people are doing when they're voice leading. Okay. Uh, you know what I mean? Like when they're like, if you watch like a uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel or like you watch a, uh, you know, like uh, I'm trying to think of his name right now, Gilad Hexelman or something, you know, playing the guitar and I've watched an Ari Honig play, right? He's, he's played with those guys some, mm -hmm. but that's a sim. I kind of see Ari's independence and his ability to kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of work on different levels at the same time, you know, okay. like different levels, like, you know, maybe have uh, weaving multiple themes together or multiple ideas together. Uh, it's a type of counterpoint in yeah. a way. Um, yeah, in in the research for this episode, I did a lot of uh, just uh, rabbit holes of Bob and uh, just talking about his death. And then a lot of people were commenting that had taken lessons from him. And it seemed like he made a huge impact on a lot of people. And I did want to play a little section of the Bob McKee trio I found on YouTube, a little 30 second clip of, of Bob playing. I was kind of like, should I have a clip of him or a clip of him teaching or playing? But I'm just going to play a little clip of him of him playing right now. I, sometimes I say to my, my girlfriend, just as a matter of just like, uh, maintaining sanity, you know, in my own, in, in, in our life and, you know, uh, just a little bit of perspective about like, wait, like we're only going to live max like a hundred years, like what's actually going on, you know? And, and one thing that, uh, I think is a flaw sometimes of, you know, being like a young person or a potential flaw is that, you know, you kind of think you feel like you kind of outsmarted we've out with all this technology we have, we think we kind of outsmarted our ancestors or our predecessors. And, you know, I can tell you, I, I have never learned or mastered, you know, what I hear in Bob, uh, in those, you know, 30 seconds or whatever. It's like that, that's not what's going on in, in reality. Like the, mm -hmm. the people that are coming next, aren't the people that are going to outsmart the people that came before. No, that's, it's weird how wrong that is. It's like, I just almost see it like the opposite. 
Uh, I think it's more likely to be the opposite because the people from the past that we remember, uh, you know, might, I mean, of course, there's a, obviously a lot of bad people, but I mean, you know, they, they might have figured something else. They might, in, in that, if, you're, if you're remembering somebody for something other than, you know, hor- horror and tragedy, you know, it's like they probably figured something out. So, and I don't know, um, it's more likely that we might be, I might be falling into, you know, patterns of, of, of action and behavior and, and I don't know, emotional reactivity and stuff like that that are less than great. You know, but I happen to be alive and they're not anymore. So, you know, it's like, I just, I, I think it's quite funny. I think it's more likely that we're the dumbasses uh, and the people that we remember from the past are probably statistically likely to be fucking, you know, like kind of having their shit together. Anyways, you get what I'm saying? It's well, I mean, that's kind of the reason I had this pod. I mean, I'm also a broken record with the podcast. It's like, you want to listen to what the elders, those people did, because usually you can pull more from them you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm probably going to edit that whole part out, but I agree with you is what I'm trying to say. It's going to be great. We're going to edit out like 90% of all this. All stuff. No, fun. you've been, you've been great. All right. So number two, and it was seen, uh, Tony Williams, Anthony Williams play when, uh, when you were a kid. Yeah. My, my dad, see now my dad was at like, uh, you know, uh, he would, he would be, he would have been somebody who was at, you know, uh, jazz concerts, you know, and, uh, Jimmy Smith, like, opened for Miles Davis in 1963 or something like that in, like, Cleveland. You know, my dad was probably there. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, he he was there, you know, watching Jim Hall, and he was there. You know, maybe he was watching Joey Lovano before Joey Lovano maybe had really made it real big. Uh, so, anyways, um, yeah, like, uh, he brought me to see some 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 great people. Uh, I, I got to see uh, Art Blakey. I got to see... Uh, 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 well, I got to see Tony, yeah, and uh, uh, damn, I'm trying to think. Uh, Max Roach, I got to see Max Roach. Uh, anyways, oh. so when I saw Tony, he I think he was probably playing those big yellow drums, and I, he, he probably had his green suit on. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. Uh, and it, like a, a green onesie. His like scrubs. They look like scrubs. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I believe it was it would have been Winton at this time. So it was like VSOP Quintet, but not with Freddie Hubbard, I think. Yeah. So it's like, oh, maybe VSOP would never had Freddie. But anyways, that doesn't matter. It was like uh, Ron Carter and Herbie Hancock. And uh, and then it was Tony. And uh, yeah. So anyways, yeah, it was it was super, super, super amazing. And, and the next thought that comes into my mind is like uh, having gone to like Cirque du Soleil and watch these two bald guys who are like contortionists just create something unbelievable in front of your eyes, like a, like a, almost like a moving sculpture. Uh, anyways, if you've seen Cirque du Soleil, this particular one, these two guys are incredible anyways, but yeah, it, it definitely, uh, it was really good. I, you know, super smart of my dad to like kind of pull the, uh, in, in a way, like uh, pull the skull cap off a little bit for the mind to be blown. Uh, not really, uh, infantilizing, uh, you know, his kids, and being like, no, no, actually, you're going to go see, you know, like, we're not going to go to the Disney movie. We're going to go see these dudes mm-hmm. and see what they're up to. And, and, and it, yeah, that was, thanks, dad. Love <laughs> <clears throat> when it, when it comes to creating technique, obviously, when I think of Tony, I think of just, you know, he's a, a mad scientist when it comes to just his, his hand technique. Was did that help you develop, or is it mostly just he was a he was one of your big fat five because of just the impact of like oh my god circus tricks I want to be that he's amazing. 
I mean, the part of Tony I felt that I really could learn from uh, was the part that uh, could create really big musical events mm. uh, because uh, kind of going back to that scale idea uh, of Dave Grohl and Juju House. Oh, and I, I wanted to make sure that I had mentioned that Dave Grohl was really into Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, uh, oh, which okay. I didn't realize because of D.C. and Virginia. Okay, sure, anyway. sure. But the 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 big uh, the big events that uh, Tony was able to create was a part of and was able to exploit as a musician, um, wherein I guess in a way, I think what's cool about that it, it's like I'm just totally thinking out loud here. I'm sorry, people. Uh, <laughs> and I know that like you know like Phil Schaff, you know you get these jazz experts and people are experts on music and like it's like yeah i mean we figured that out like 40 years ago but like <laughs> you know like i'm thinking of you know the fact that you know jazz went through these uh interesting transformations that were probably a lot of them were economic you know like you had the big bands and then you had a big economic crash and then all of a sudden you got like only three or four people on stage you know? <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> after the great depression how weird like, yeah yeah weird you got like so now you got like nobody in the band and it's like laptops <laughs> so anyway so, uh, you just you told know, the history of performing music right there. <laughs> it doesn't look good, man. Um, so anyways, uh, so, you know, jazz went through that whole thing with, uh, you know, the big bands and went to combos. And then, and I'm kind of thinking that a lot of times the combos were playing in smaller venues. And then all of a sudden, like some of these jazz musicians got like, like real big time, like they were rock stars. And so I saw them in a huge room. You know, it was it was like they were total rock stars, mm -hmm. like straight up. I mean, no, it wasn't the Coliseum or it wasn't like some, you know, it wasn't like 30,000 seater, but it was like there had to be like a couple thousand people in there. And, and, and those are big shows. And so these these musicians had figured out a way to 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 like do this awesome conversion of jazz from like a small combo root, the roots, you know, big man, small combo, small room with the combos and then take that that high art combo stuff and turn it into almost like rock star stuff like you know big events and so tony's big event mindset i think was was really great uh he could turn a jazz concert into what the way i experienced was you know it was it, it, was, it was like a rock concert which obviously I, I i came up with a lot of rock and roll anyways um so yeah and and the reason i'm specifying that is because a lot of the really you know uh the technique stuff, like the way he's touching that ride symbol, the way he's mm. keeping time, or like the the higher level, more cerebral aspects of these these people's playing. I felt like I kind of was going to get pop, probably get more diminishing returns trying to learn from that a lot. Uh, I felt like my my orientation as a person was like, you know what? I probably I'm I'm the guy that's going to get lost in the details over there. Mm. So I, I probably should focus on the big event ideas you know like these that these people are presenting uh and try to learn from that so it kind of goes back to juju house it goes back to dave Grohl. the aspects of tony williams that i feel like i can distill and maybe take something from are the aspects that are kind of like dave Grohl, you know in tony's playing like he was a beast and like uh i mean obviously those i think those guys are much more like aggressive and 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 powerful than i am but i just mean that like they can be very distillative. I mean, the, did you ever check out? Well, it doesn't matter if you haven't. I just mean that there was a record that I used to religiously listen to. Was a it was Miles Davis cooking at the Plug Nickel? Is what it was called. I haven't heard that one. No. Well, I believe that it was uh, recorded in Chicago. I think the Plug Nickel was in Chicago. But 
So I remember driving to school like every day, probably for years, definitely like over years, but uh, listening to Cooking at the Plug Nickel, there is so much space in that music. Mm -hmm. uh, it is like, uh, well, all I could say is like, that's that and like Nefertiti, you know, Miles Davis is Nefertiti. Like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can learn from that. Like, I mean, he is just like, he will go like a whole song or a whole, you know, uh, um, a whole performance of a song. And he'll, I don't know, he, he probably just hit the ride symbol sometimes. can't even uh it's like you're speechless you know yeah. I, I all i can say is that from the uh right out of that right out of the gates you know at the end of the head uh it's just genius i'm just like that what the hell is that it's funny because i was going to play another song called proto cosmos it's off lifetime the collections but it, his 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 like greatest hit should just be called what the hell was that <laughs> yeah what the hell was that <laughs> what the hell is that that's absolutely right all right so number three is uh, lessons with sebastian whitaker also known as bash yeah bash yeah uh it, it you know he, he was a he was one of the most important teachers uh that i ever had um he died a couple years ago he had a, a he was blind uh and he wasn't actually blind at birth i don't think i think he had a an illness um that uh, caused him to go blind very, very, very young. Like, uh, you know, maybe when he was, had just been born and then, uh, his illness came back and he died a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, his, uh, he, he made a real, uh, a, a real asset out of uh, his ears <laughs> in a way that, sure. uh, you know, in, in a way that was like, uh, probably almost helped by the fact that he was blind. He had, a almost paranormal abilities i think um <laughs> with <laughs> regarding that no totally he was, armed. he was he was awesome he was also armed so he totally like uh he totally had his uh you know he had his pistol in his bedroom and stuff you know he was ready anybody comes in his house <laughs> all over sebastian he, and you know what it's actually you know i i i laugh but i don't mean to laugh because if any person could shoot you in the friggin dark it'd be him i mean like <laughs> that dude knew where you were yeah but i mean and it was so amazing to study with him everything that he you know it's like you really idolize uh you know when you're young like that and you have a person near you like that who's so gifted and has a very specific gift you know it's like just the way he'd grab your arm the gravity of being uh, touched by somebody who sees with somebody who sees with their hands and sees with their ears. Uh, I, it's different, you know, it's like, wow. So, you know, he had a lot of, uh, uh gravity to his personality and his playing. And, uh, he was real, real sensitive to whether something just sounded good, you know, because like he, he doesn't get to have like 
color in his life. You know, he doesn't get to have, uh, you know, paintings or uh, TV shows that he can look at, although he watched TV and like, you know, he, uh, he, and he had his favorite shows and stuff. He just did it all with his ears. So, uh, you know, it's like, so when he sits down, it's like, you know, uh, you know, he sits down behind the kit, he's bringing that zone with him. So that was spooky. I really, really am so grateful for uh, Sebastian. He schooled the shit out of me. Uh, he would only charge me like 20 bucks and I'd go over to his house and he had this Reuther kit. It was, it was a brand called Reuther that he would practice on. And in fact, there's one, there's a, a white Reuther kit above me right now on top of this uh, uh, this studio uh, ceiling. Uh, I don't know who owns it, but it's exactly like what he was playing back in those days. And uh, he and and he, and he would uh, we would like trade fours and uh, and I would absolutely just uh, you know I'd, I'd get pummeled you know he would he would completely shatter me but he was cool he was also super cool like he was just like Bob McKee he was totally cool and uh, never was negative or dark with me he was totally chill. My first drum set was a Reuther. I, I've never known how to pronounce it. Yeah. I, I don't know either. I'm just kind of going for it. Like, it's like, I, always, like, I said Ruther, and I was like, that's obviously not it. But it was white, too, but it was kind of obviously like yellow, kind of like those old Roland, totally. you know, like uh, electronic. It's just, it becomes eggshell. But um, that's so crazy. I've never heard someone else play play Reuther. Totally. Sebastian did. And like uh, Reuther is like the tag Hoyer or tag Hauer of, of drums. Like, I don't know how to pronounce those watches names. And I kind of don't want to know. I just want to continue living my life without knowing that. Because that's just what it's one of those things I could depend on. It's like, that's not good. I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce that shit. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm probably wrong. I think we've said four different versions so far. So, um, no, and I to, to echo and I'm, I've been trying to figure out how to phrase this without being severely insensitive but i i hope the sentiment is going to come across i wonder sometimes what it would be like to be a blind drummer and have the perspective of not knowing how anyone's kit is set up not knowing physically what other drummers hands look like when they play like having it just you 100 percent see with your ears and hands um and that's it's a beautiful thing that you're able to you know learn with him yeah, I mean, like, I remember, it's funny to think about Sebastian, too, because uh, he managed to play the drums in such a way where, you know, I was envious of his blindness. Sure. So it's like, well, damn, you must have played the drums pretty well, because, you know, I, I, I remember coming home and my mom would I'd laugh because I'd come home and put bandanas on around my eyes when I was practicing uh to try to like <laughs> to try to be sebastian i basically wanted to be sebastian you know what i mean like that's so cool it's <laughs> like i was so bummed with myself because i wasn't him yeah uh, you know what i mean so like i would blindfold myself and practice it's just hilarious i mean i was a kid so you know it's like i mean i don't mean a kid i was a teenager but like sure but that that's a testament to his playing right like his playing was so awesome that People wanted to be blind like him, you know, and play drums just like him. <laughs> I've seen, I mean, I'm going to play a little snippet of him, but he's seen, I mean, I've, they're pretty recent videos because he was still uploading stuff, you know, pretty close to when he, when he unfortunately passed away. But, um, he seemed like such a cool guy, such a laid back dude. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Oh, well, let me just, let me just play a little bit of an intro to a video that he uploaded to YouTube. Not, not too long ago.
killer player. And again, like, you know, his set is set up so ergonomically to his body. I mean, not many people can say, oh, my setup is exactly how my body wants it to be set up because we have so many other obstacles on the way in the way. So um, there's a bunch of YouTube videos of of uh, of Sebastian playing, talking to the camera, um, just kind of talking about his perspective on things. So you guys can still learn from Sebastian. Um, so go 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 check him out. All right. Number three is watching uh, Chris Dave playing when you were growing up. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky enough to go to school with Chris uh, at high school. So, uh, yeah. Oh, man. That is so cool. Like, uh, sometimes it didn't feel too cool at the time because he was just blowing me away so bad that I was like, <laughs> you guys should quit, you know? But, like, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was so cool because there was just, like, a certain kind of uh, schooling, you know, and a perspective that I just would have never gotten uh because he was bringing it and it and it and it wasn't uh there wasn't any place where i could go to really find that and be in the same room with that and 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 just feel it you know mm-hmm. uh so yeah i mean that he he's awesome uh and i'm just so wowed uh by chris another archetype for me you know um it's cool to think about actually because because you were asking me about tony and like oh uh you know um uh, you know, what, what were you getting from Tony or something? You were asking me about, you know, like, yeah, more geeky technical stuff. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Exactly. And, uh, once again, I think that there were, uh, only so much that I felt like I could really grasp and, and come away with and really learn, uh, from Chris, just because, uh, you know, you're, you're as a person, you're already kind of located, so to speak in, in a certain area, you know, as you know, with your strengths and your weaknesses and your inclinations and stuff. So, you know, you, you, you're, you're always having to like, you're always having to kind of return to yourself and remember that, you know, you're not really going to be able to make yourself into somebody you idolize. But anyways, the, 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 the idolatry was there, you know, guilty as charged. Yeah. Well, let me play a little, a little bit of him. Um, it's going to be from a, a kind of a, uh, compilation i guess you would say on youtube and so the cool thing about this is you guys are just hearing this but the first notes you hear are actually chris playing with his fingers so clean annoyingly clean unbelievable that's 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 incredible it's so textural uh there's so many uh it it, it's really something that you you, you can feel like you can kind of almost see it you know the textures and the the whole uh you know the the way the groove kind of walks through time yeah it has all this like granular and like uh uh, weird like like a like almost like crushed geometries that kind of like uh reveal and then it and then it has this low end like hood on it and it's it's all dark and it has it's just amazing it just sounds it sounds fucking it's crazy man you know it it was funny man like uh when when you uh said chris was playing with his fingers it made me think of something really funny yeah Uh, we were kids um you know like we were joking around and um you know we would joke around with uh, everybody was joking around. I just mean that like we were say, saying something like, uh, you know, oh, you're a real master on the skin flute or something like that. Like, you know, taking, yeah, uh, goading each other on and yeah. probably talk about each other's moms or something like that. Yeah. 
And then, you know, we, at one point we were joking around and like, you know, like, I was like, come on, come on, Chris. And like, you know, I, you know, lightly hit him on the arm or something like that. And then the way that he kind of like, he kind of like was like, he, and then he was like, took a little jab at me, totally nice jab. <laughs> but the way that he, the, the type of jab, I, I'll never forget the imprint of like the way his, the, he had this nice little quick jab, like the way the way that that jab was, it had like a, it had a sharpness to it and it was real fast. And then it reminded me also when, when we were listening to that, that there was one really interesting thing I noticed about Chris when we were in school. And it's true to this day. If you put me down in front of a conga, like I can't get that snap. Like I'll, I'll be, I, it'll sound like, you know, it sounds horrible when my hand hits the conga. And then every like 10th, attempt to get the that that you know in whatever it is out out of the conga yeah i know yeah every 10th failure i might get one that sounds it's very <laughs> funny chris knew how he could get that conga to just make that that nice tight pop i there was a guy kuko miranda that I, that i played a little bit with uh, and he had that you know it was just like every time he snapped that conga it just it reminds you of a little like a little walnut getting cracked or something. It's just, it has a visual to it. Mm -hmm. It's very funny like that, but Chris had that. Chris had that. And I was like, oh man, like every time he touches a drum, a good sound comes out of it. So like, I, damn I know, it, Chris. I know, damn, damn you, Chris, damn you. I, I really hope he has that. like bad breath or something. Like there's something really wrong with him. Cause it seems like he's just like everything. He's like, are you good at everything, Chris? He's so um, good at the drums. He's so good at the drums. So yeah, yeah I, I was real lucky to be, uh, you know, seeing what he was up to when we were kids. I, I feel real blessed for that. Do you still keep in contact with him? occasionally yeah yeah that's occasionally cool. we say hi on text or email and stuff you know that's great yeah um all right so the number five is studying with kenwood denard and yeah. uh he is a drummer and again this is why i love this doing this podcast is he's he's one of those drummers that i know i should know about but i don't and so i'm gonna give you the floor to explain to me what he's done because i i'm un embarrassingly not that well rehearsed on on kenwood yeah, yeah. I mean, Kenwood, uh, I saw him play at uh, Sweet Basil with Adam Holtzman, I think it was. I'm pretty sure that's what it was at that time. Uh, and I saw him, uh, He, I know he played a little tiny bit with Sting, uh, and he played with Jocko. Um, so uh, I saw him play live a couple of times in New York City, way, way back in the day, you know, 89, 90, 91. And he was real eccentric, a real interesting approach. And he had some really cool concepts that I thought were, well, okay. Uh, I think at the time he was a, a, a probably still is, but he's, a, I believe, a, a Buddhist, a SGI Buddhist. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it's SGI, Soka Gakkai International, uh, which is a Japanese form of Buddhism. So he would say some things uh, sometimes, and I'd be like, what the hell, man? Like, what's he talking about? Like, one time I remember he started talking about levels of listening. And he actually no kidding, tried to almost map out uh, how somebody would go about listening. Uh, okay, it's psychologically, I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, knowing that you have these choices uh, in terms of listening, and then maybe choosing a sort of different type of listening for better results. Okay? And, so I'll, I'll, and I don't you know, I don't have the full list, but Kenwood Denard would be able to tell you what the levels levels of listening that they are. And there's something like this, like you're listening to yourself. Um, you're listening to 
one other person. You're listening to yourself listen to somebody else. Uh, you're listening to somebody else. I'm kind of thinking that that we're playing in these in these you know you're listening moments. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're on a gig or whatever. Okay, now you're listening to somebody else. Listen to somebody else. You know what I mean? It's almost like listening, playing. So in that sense, I think what he really sometimes meant was, oh, well, you're listening to the bass player who really knows the singer. And the bass player has got the, has cracked the code of the singer. So you're listening to that guy. Okay. Mm. So you're not spending this time going like, you know, I'm listening to me because I'm dope. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Oh, you're fired. Boom. Done. Okay. And then it's like, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so I'm listening to you and it's like, boom, you're fired because actually, no, don't listen to me. Listen to like the fact that I'm listening to the vocalist and that's going to make the thing work. And that's the kind of thing he would talk about. Like, and I was like, oh, in other words, like you've come up with a conceptual map for how to like solve a musical problem. Like this band sounds like shit and it can't sound like shit. So, and if you don't solve it, then like the, either the band's going to die or someone else is going to show up to solve it. Or I don't know the options are, those are all options that we don't want to deal with. Yeah. Cause we still, have, we still have agency. So mm-hmm. basically what he was saying was, is like, uh, the technique that you use to solve for like a shitty sounding band, uh, those are things you can map and write down. Like it might get you fired to just listen to the singer. Because the singer might be all about the bass player who's really listening to that singer. So, or I don't know, the, the, the combinations of this stuff could be infinite. Or maybe sometimes you do need to just listen to yourself and everyone just hangs off of you. Like, I don't even have you in my monitors, dudes. It's not about that. This gig is not about interplay. It's about me fucking kicking some ass and you're all, you're the fucking caboose. Like mm-hmm. sometimes you need to be that guy. Mm. And sometimes that is the absolute worst guy to be ever. And, and he had all these like cool, uh, you know, like uh, levels of listening kind of categorized and they went on there probably it was 20 of them. And I thought that was a real interesting idea. And I think the fact that he said that to me, I thought it was weird as shit when he said it. <laughs> and now I look back and I was like, Man, that might've been like one of the coolest things he ever said and you want to know something funny about this yeah henwood denard uh used hearing aids he he actually was hearing impaired to some degree oh and i think that's very interesting that like two of these teachers that i had had uh, some type of um impairment or disability whatever the terminology is um, that uh they managed to well basically shift yeah, they, they shifted it to their advantage and mine. <laughs> yeah, and then now mine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, I, yeah, you get me going on this stuff. I start talking a whole lot. I'm really sorry about that. But, uh, you know, there is this thing because I, um, Dave Elich, um, I met him a, a couple, a few years ago now, and I absolutely love Dave Elich. He said something really funny because he teaches a lot of people and, he, and he's like, dude, I get people coming in here and, uh, you know, they, they want, they want the one handed role. Uh, you know, like your, your hand is holding a stick mm-hmm. and it's near the snare drum. And yeah. like this sound comes out like, yep. Fuck that man. Like I had no fucking idea how they're doing that shit. Right. Okay. And like, but Kenwood did that. Kenwood did that. He would play a fucking one handed role that would blow your mind. 
it would just be like i would be like okay but you know what's funny like that wasn't the takeaway point at all and probably his one-handed role maybe wouldn't have mattered in terms of him being a really good teacher had he not had like those levels of listening stuff and well like you know some people just can't benefit from the the one-handed role like i'm that guy like you can me give too. me all yeah yeah i just i'm not going to benefit from that like i'm going to i'm going to use it improperly mm-hmm. uh, you know or some shit some shit like that you know what i mean well he he gave me a book well he gave me some parts of a book and it's mm-hmm. called like elementary training for musicians by i think it's like paul hendemith or something mm. So you open up this book and like, it just kind of breaks down like basic stuff of like, okay, that note's sitting there. And then these other notes are here. And then, okay, read this, clap this and read that. And, you know, of course it's a showstopper you, know, you open <laughs> yeah. the page and you try to do it. And you're like, uh, you know, it, it's sort of probably, it might be similar to the way Ari Honig teaches, uh, where, you know, I, I've, uh, I know some people who've studied with him and it's like, they, it's like, they don't pick up sticks. It's like, oh, I've been studying with Ari for like six months. We never picked up drumsticks. And it's like, well, okay, what are you doing? It's like, well, we're clapping and singing. Um, you know, it's like, so he's like, he's got some counter th- counter rhythms going and they're clapping, right? Okay. So, uh, but yeah, Kenwood showed me this uh, Paul Hindemith book. I think I, I may, I probably got the wrong, the wrong author's name. I, I apologize for that, but uh, elementary training for musicians. And, uh, you know, like I, I just, I just saw it. I was like, dude. I've seen like Bill Stewart, you know, just that, leave it at that. I've seen Bill Stewart and it's like, you know what, man, I'm not going to, to, I'm not going to be a virtuoso. I've seen Chris, I've seen Tony Williams. I'm not going to be a virtuoso. I'm not going to be able to hang with Ari Honig. So what's left like one handed rolls? No, dude, I'm not going to try to, and they don't do, by the way, Ari's super like, you know, he's like, oh my God, don't put me in front of a pad. Like, you know, he, he feels, he didn't get that good by being arrogant. The guy's super humble. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like he, he's like, you know, he, he knows what his strengths are and there's a hell of a lot of them, but you know, I'm just saying that like when I was young and at the jazz school and in, in New York and, you know, and doing all that kind of thing, um, I kind of realized I was like, dude, you're not going to like need all that you know, super high level technique, because somehow you just don't have it in you, man, to be some kind of like phenom. It's not going to happen. If it were going to happen, it would have already happened. And I don't even want that because really what I, what made me want to play music was like, like originally like metal, like, or like, you know, Iron Maiden, ACDC, uh, uh, like, uh, Metallica, you know, fade to black and and later like enter Sandman. Like what made me want to play drums was just like, dude, I'm a headbanger, man. I want to like, I want to like get into this thing. And so anyways, Dave Ulich is totally like, he he's exposed to uh, some of this technical culture in a way that I'm not through some of his students. And, and also just that he's mastered a tremendous amount of stuff uh, uh, for good reason, you know, and he uses it incredibly well, but uh uh, I just think about those tools and I'm like, man, I just, uh, I don't feel like I'm going to be needing that stuff. Anyways, I'm, I'm a broken record on that. Sorry about that. No, well, we do. I do have to wrap it up, but I did want to finish it by saying I, the word virtuoso is a, is a very subjective word. And I would say that uh, a lot of drummers I've talked to and a lot of people that I look up to would, and I would include myself in this statement that I think you are 
a virtuoso in in what you do and uh playing for the song and um seeing you play i i i get your sentiment but um i think that you've created your own virtuosic abilities um that i think are objective so i'm gonna respectfully disagree with you <laughs> thank you very much you know like I'm, i i feel like i'm a, you know when i watch uh take for example brian blade i was watching brian blade mm, uh, yes um you know on just some videos on youtube and and that's what i mean i'm absolutely uh you know <laughs> It's weird. Like I, I was listening to some uh, astronomers or maybe it's like physicists, people that are in the sciences, you know, like hard mm -hmm. science, sciences. And they're, you know, it's a funny concept because some, some people will argue that like in a way we know less than we did in say 1950. Because as we thought we were going to um, learn more and get more answers and come to a more complete knowledge of, of reality, um, we actually learned that, oh man, we just got a whole, like a, a, an order of magnitude more questions. And, yeah. and now the benefit is from that is that we sort of know a little bit more about what to ask. And we know a little bit more that we, we know we're more acutely aware of, of, of how vast the body of potential knowledge is that we have yet to acquire. And, and, and that, so in that sense, I'm not, you know, like in the same place as I was when I was a kid, when I watched Brian Blade or something like that. But like, I'm just saying like, when I watch Brian Blade, I'm like, Oh, you know what? You know what's really great about being a drummer is I, I can actually understand some of that, mm. but I sure as hell can't do it. You know what I mean? But I, but what's great, I, I get, I, I feel like I got like, um, what would you call it? Like one of those box seats, you know, at, at, at this, you know, I got special seating because I actually understand it. You know, I, t I, I, I take my girlfriend to go watch uh, Ari, Ari Honig play and uh, she just doesn't understand jazz, which is fine. And it, First of all, my girlfriend and I love music and we listen to music all the time together and she's awesome. She loves, she has great music and she loves your band too. <laughs> but anyways, uh, you know, the, the jazz can get a little abstract for her, but uh, I feel like uh, at least I can kind of uh, get into it and, and, and have a little bit of insight into it. So that, that makes it really worthwhile, you know, uh, you know, drumming. I, well, I love, and I'm, I'm notorious for butchering, like summing up what people say so eloquently and then put it in kind of like a box. But what I gathered from that is, is like, the more you find out, the more like you'll realize you know less, but you know how to ask better questions. It's so hilarious. It's actually like uh, it, it goes back to like uh, uh, Lao Tzu, uh, the Tao Te Ching type stuff where it's really cool. I would recommend try if you haven't done it, try listening to the YouTube translations of uh, Lao Tzu. Uh, I think it's I think it's spelled L-A-O-T-Z-U. Uh, okay like Taoism, but it's called the Tao Te Ching, T-A-O-T-E-C-H-I-N-G. Anyways, it's it's like, I think it translates as the way, the book of the way. But what's really cool about uh, the Tao Te Ching is um, it's like, this is like, we're just putting our toe into the sort of depths of what Lao Tzu's on about in the Tao Te Ching, like regarding like uh, a false sense of security around say narratives about stuff that you think you know or the way things are and like but they're not and like and there you go through life like you know like a bull in a china shop and that's totally like what Lao, Lao Tzu you know is kind of addressing in the Tao Te Ching in a really cool way of of like not only being aware that you don't have, I guess, perfect knowledge. I mean, I'm not trying to sum up Lao but or that you lack, you lack per perfect knowledge, but also seeing that as like, that's a really good thing because what that does is, is it's like, no, dude, it's not about, you know, like, dude, I know everything. I'm totally prepared and look at my CV and my resume and holy shit, I'm here. It's like, no, you get to be more awake about 
the, all the indeterminacies and all the cool stuff that can happen, that kind of just makes this whole narrative of you disappear. It's like, fuck you, man. Like, who cares who you are? Why don't you shut up and listen? You know what I'm saying? I love like, that. Yeah. It, it's it's really cool. Loud Louds is really cool. Anyways, I recommend that. It's, it's, it's a great YouTube listen. Okay. All right. Well, Matt, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, man. It's it's good to catch up because I know I haven't talked to you in a in few years. But um, next time I'm in Austin, man, let's let's do something or vice versa, dude. Right on. Right on. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. And that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at Isotope.com. Bye.